you can go ahead and open up in a copy of the Confession to chapter 22, paragraph 5. And have your, your Bibles ready. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture, but I don't know that we'll necessarily need to turn to all of them. We're continuing to walk through the various parts of worship commanded by God to be included in the public worship of the church. So far we've seen specifically the use of the Scriptures, how the Scriptures are to be read and preached and in the reading and the hearing, or the reading and the preaching, heard. And all three of these are parts of worship, and they are acts of worship of the people of God. And last Lord's Day, we looked at songs, to use the scriptural phrase, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and how that functions in the corporate worship of God. And remember, all of these are traceable back to the, the Word of God as the centerpiece of Christian worship because it's through the Word of God that we come to know God. Therefore, the Word of God forms the substance of our worship because God Himself is the sole object of our worship. In everything that we do, reading, preaching, singing, as we'll see this evening with baptism and the Lord's Supper, everything that we're doing is taking the revelation that God has given us of Himself and we're, we're, we're sort of just swimming in it in, in every facet. We're, we're, we're reading it, we're hearing it, we're preaching it, we're singing it, we're acting it. All of it is meant to teach us and remind us about our God. So now we come to the third category, which I've entitled the sacraments in order to keep all of these uh, with a word that begins with an S. Some would rather us use the word ordinances, and our confession uses the word ordinances. There's nothing wrong with the word ordinances. But we can say ordinances or sacraments. Both of those words are correct, and there's not not anything particularly Romish or uh, superstitious about the word sacraments. Now, some people do reject that sacramental idea. As I was talking earlier, I've ran into some... Uh, a Lutheran in particular who found it very strange that a Baptist would refer to the Lord's Supper and baptism as sacraments because in their thinking, they've, they've got a sole claim to that word in their particular doctrine, whereas others would argue, actually, no, it's only the Baptists who could use that word properly. So what is a sacrament? Webster's Dictionary says that a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual grace. In the past, I've used this definition from Sam Renahan, which is even more succinct, and obviously all of this needs to be teased out, but in order to be very succinct and simple, he says that a sacrament is the Word in visible mode. So we could put it like this. In His Word, God teaches us a particular truth about our relationship to Him and His relationship to us. And we learn that truth by coming to the Scriptures. We read it. Our minds comprehend the truth. The Spirit makes that truth effectual in our hearts. And we learn about God's relationship to us and our relationship to Him. 
A sacrament is something that conveys the exact same thing that the Word conveys, except it doesn't do it through ink on paper. It does it by some outward, physical, visible thing. So we could ask, what is the function of the Word of God in the life of a believer? How, whatever your answer is there, you could say the same thing about the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. They are revelations of God which teach us something that the Word also teaches us. In that sense, the sacrament apart from the written Word is useless, as we'll see. Because the sacrament cannot by itself convey the full truth. We could put somebody in the water and have a bunch of people standing around and we would, without revelation, we would still kind of wonder, well, what, what just happened? What are we doing here? But because we have the written Word, the sacraments then come along to teach the same thing the written Word teaches in visible form. The sacrament with the Word makes the truth tangible to us and makes it a means of grace. By taking part in the sacraments, we are evidencing or manifesting our personal participation in the relationship that's being illustrated by the sacrament through faith. Sacraments then are not for those who have no real participation in the spiritual reality that is illustrated by the sacrament. Again, going back to this idea with with. Our, the Baptist view of the sacraments. I've seen a guy this week post online that technically only credo-baptists can say that baptism is a sacrament because we're the only ones who don't separate faith from baptism itself, the, the one being baptized. So again, we shouldn't be alarmed or afraid of that word sacrament as if we're, we're being drugged back into Rome. So now, moving into the confession, as we consider the sacraments, we read this. The administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Now notice those first two words. The administration. To administer means to deliver or to give out. To, to provide. A, a teacher might administer an exam. A nurse might administer an injection. When we speak of the administration of the sacraments, we're not talking exclusively about the individuals who participate. We're talking about the dealing out of the sacraments, the administration of them, the, the, the dispensing of the sacraments. The administration of a sacrament is the giving of the sacrament, not the reception of the sacrament. But with the sacraments, there is a relationship between administration and reception. Now let me explain that. If I were to ask, who administers baptism and the Lord's Supper? Who deals out the sacraments? We could answer that in two ways. Broadly speaking... We would say that the church is the authoritative body given the task of administering the sacraments. And that's because the, the administration of the sacraments is directly associated with wielding the keys of the kingdom of heaven which have been given to the church. 
both of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are also knit very tightly together with church membership. And so, who administers the sacraments? Well, broadly speaking, you, in a roundabout way, as the church, again, not the Roman Catholic Church, but every local church by itself has the authority. You are the administrator of the sacraments collectively. And you do that by admitting people into membership. Now, Most of you have never distributed the elements of the Lord's Supper. Most of you have never dunked someone in the water. So we would want to get a little bit more specific. Who administers baptism in the Lord's Supper? Well, the the church, as an authoritative body, executes its authority through those who have the rule in the congregation, namely the elders. So the church has the authority and administers through, you might want to think of through the, the arm of the elders, the officers in that assembly. The elders may not act alone in administering the sacraments. We can't just decide who we want to hand out stuff to or who we want to put in the water. That is beyond our authority. But the church does act through the execution of the elders. So who administers Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, in that way, it's the church through the elders. When you put that together, it is the church who administers and it is the church who receives. And the topic here is the administration. It's the overarching concept of the church as a corporate entity exercising the keys of the kingdom in specific ways when she is assembled. And in that, it becomes an act of worship when the church administers the sacraments. So the administration of these things, moving on down in the statement, is to be done with understanding. Now, that means that those who administer, both broadly and specifically, must have some understanding of what they're doing when they administer the sacraments. In other words, the church as a whole needs to have some idea of what it means to administer the Lord's Supper and Baptism. You need to know what it means to raise your hand and welcome somebody into the assembly. When you do that, if they're joining by baptism, you as a church are agreeing, we believe we should administer baptism to this one. We believe we should administer the Lord's Supper to this one. That's what you're doing. It's not, well, we believe we'd like to have them keep coming and and not stop coming. It's, 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 It's a welcoming into a covenant community. Another thing I've seen this week, someone asked, uh, do, do Baptists have any concept of, of covenant family? And if so, where do they go in the Scriptures? And I commented, very simply, local church. That's the covenant community for, for Bible-believing Christians. It's the church. We're welcoming people into a covenant community. So the bulk of our study tonight is going to be walking through several important points about each of the sacraments in order to get a better understanding of each of the sacraments. Now... Chapter 28 of our confession is entitled, Of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Chapter 29 is on baptism. Chapter 30 is on the Lord's Supper. In other words, we've got three more chapters to to deal with, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I, I, I don't feel very much pressure to be exhaustive in this treatment. I just want to walk through several things and just help us get a better understanding of, of what these things are. So first, baptism. The administration of baptism is a part of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. First, we know that baptism 
is a New Testament phenomenon. And what I mean by that is, anything you're going to learn about baptism, for the most part, is going to come after that blank page in your Bible between Malachi and Matthew. We would obviously say, well, the New Covenant itself wasn't ratified until Christ was crucified. But it's a New Testament phenomenon, specifically in the way that our Bibles are put together. We see it pop up with John the Baptist. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, John the Baptist comes preaching and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, again, without the rest of the New Testament, we might just sort of scratch our heads. What, what is, what's this guy doing? You know, he's, he dresses strange. He looks strange. He eats strange food. When people come to them, he puts them down in the water. He's just an overwhelmingly strange man. But we continue to read. We find out there's something significant about what's happening. We see the Lord Jesus comes to John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John the Baptist is preaching. He's baptizing people in water to uh, to put a, a seal of affirmation or confirmation on what John was doing. The Lord Jesus Himself comes and says, I'm going to do this too. And He's baptized. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, among the few things that were commanded, we find baptism. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, when the Jews, they they heard this sermon of of Peter, and they're cut to the heart, and they say, what must we do? What do they want to, they they need to know what actions should we take in light of this grievous sin that we've committed against the Son of God. It says, Peter said to them, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, we meet the Ethiopian eunuch. Read these words, Acts 8, 35-38. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Apparently, something in this sermon of, of Philip led the Ethiopian to say, Well, that's what I need to happen to me. He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Saul of Tarsus, who we refer to as the Apostle Paul, was baptized, Acts 9.18. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. The Gentiles of Caesarea were baptized after Peter's preaching, Acts 10. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.13, Paul could say, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obviously the assumption is everybody reading this letter as members of the church were baptized. Baptism litters the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, 
proving its intimate connection with the new covenant, with the church, and with salvation and discipleship. The word baptize means to dip or immerse, usually in water, although it can be used metaphorically. As we've seen, He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what baptism means, to dip or immerse. Now the question is, what exactly does baptism mean? Where did it come from? What's the point? If it is a sacrament that it's meant to convey to us some truth taught elsewhere in Scripture, and if it is a sacrament, then it's meant to take some vi- uh, to make visible or physical some spiritual aspect of our relationship with God. Now the preeminent text here is Romans chapter 6. And we read this pretty much every time that we baptize someone because it explains to us what baptism means. Romans 6, 3-5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, (coughs) we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now this text is the teaching. This is explaining the true spiritual reality of salvation and our relationship to and with God. In other words, we could say this text has nothing to do with water baptism. At the same time, we could say water baptism has everything to do with this text because water baptism is the the, the picture, the visible thing that teaches us through sight what this text teaches descriptively and using ink on paper. This is the, the spiritual reality that is being taught through the act of baptism. What this text teaches as to the spiritual nature of our union with Christ in His death, water baptism signifies and teaches. So here, Paul teaches that the regenerate saint has been baptized. But he doesn't say baptized into water. He says you've been baptized into Christ. Immersed into Christ. And more specifically here, immersed, baptized into His death. That is, by the Spirit of Christ, we come into a real, mystical, spiritual union with Christ so that His works are credited to us as if we had performed them. Here specifically, His death is credited to us. And so the Christian, in union with Christ, is united to Christ in His death so that Christ's death is credited to your account as if you had died the death. He says the same thing more generically in Galatians 3. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He doesn't say water. You were baptized into Christ. Immersed into Him. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about our being immersed by the Spirit of Christ 
into Christ so that all that Christ has becomes ours. And that happens at the moment of saving faith. We're baptized into Christ. The, the bond of our union with Christ is the Holy Spirit. And so baptism is an external, physical, visible act which is meant to signify the fact that through faith and by the Holy Spirit, the Christian shares in Christ's death to sin. The imagery of being lain in the grave and being raised up to life signifies Christ's own death and resurrection. That's why we say we're buried with Him and we're raised to walk. It's a picture of what has already happened to that person. The obvious question then becomes, who is to be baptized? To whom should the church, through the execution of the elders, administer water baptism? The only answer would be to those who've been joined to Christ through faith by the indwelling Spirit. In other words, it would be regenerate saints. Any other answer, though it may seek to elevate baptism, really removes baptism of all of its meaning. Regenerate saints. From other texts, we could say this. Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those who are disciples of Christ should be baptized. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ should be baptized. Acts 2.41, Those who received His Word were baptized. Those who have received with meekness the implanted Word should be baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, or but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Who should be baptized? Those who have believed the gospel should be baptized. Acts 9.18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. In other words, after a true heart-changing encounter with Christ in which one's spiritual eyes are open to the truth, that person should be baptized. Acts 10.47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Who should be baptized? Those who have received the Holy Spirit should be baptized. In other words, believers. Baptism signifies that the person being baptized shares this union with Christ and that will be manifested through many different fruits. Now, the next question, what is the ecclesiastical significance of baptism seeing as it is to be administered by or through the authority of the local church or to put it this way what is the church saying let's say we have someone who wants to join the church they say I've, I've never been baptized so they're going to be baptized via or they're going to be they're going to join the church or be admitted to the church through baptism and we vote to welcome them into membership through baptism, and you raise your hand, what are you saying when you say, I agree? What are you saying? You're saying or you're affirming 
as far as you're able to observe that the candidate is in fact a disciple of Christ who's believed the gospel, who has repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, who's received with meekness the implanted word, whose spiritual eyes are opened, and who is indeed filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it important that the church recognize these things? Because it's to the church that the keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given. The church wields that authority. The church, by affirming these things, welcomes citizens of Christ's spiritual kingdom into the visible manifestation of that kingdom, which is the local church. We see this in Acts 2.41. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there's the, the sacramental Reality, they were actually physically baptized. And after baptism, they were added to the counted number of the church in Jerusalem. Somebody's counting. Somebody's keeping records. Somebody knows who these people are. They were added to that number. That's the sacramental reality. But for the spiritual reality that's being conveyed, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. In other words, spiritual baptism brings someone into the spiritual body of Christ, and it's physical baptism which brings them into the visible manifestation of that, the visible body or the local church. But that's, that's strictly talking about that spiritual reality. You were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Now, how is this a part of worship? The administration of baptism. And hopefully this will help you when we, when we welcome members into the church. We, we baptize people. Hopefully you'll, you'll begin to understand that this is, when I raise my hand and affirm, this is worship. This is something the church has been given to do when they gather. How is this worship? First, baptism is a, what we call a positive command. In other words, it's not something that's revealed through general revelation. You, apart from special revelation, nobody would ever come up with the idea that to be dunked down in water is a, a visible expression of the spiritual reality of being united to Christ. Nobody would ever come up with that. God has commanded it, and that's why we do it. Period. This is what God has commanded. And so, when a church administers baptism to true saints, it's an act of pure obedience. There's no natural inclination ingrained in human beings to say, oh, you want to hang out with us? Well, let me shove you down into the water right quick. That's not natural. It's, it's only because it's, it's commanded. It's, it's pure obedience. And when somebody enters the waters of baptism, it's an act of obedience to a positive command. Well, that's what the Word says. I want to obey Christ, and so I will be baptized. And when the church obeys God in its assemblies, that's worship. That's honoring God. That's giving acceptable worship to God. Secondly, baptism protects the door of the church. When baptism is administered properly to its proper subjects, it serves to make sure that the church membership is only made up of regenerate saints. Now, can we be wrong? Absolutely. We have been wrong. We can be wrong. The question is not, is it possible to be wrong? The question is, are we doing all that we've been commanded to do to protect 
the, the purity of the church. And when you're wrong, that's where the other use of the keys of the kingdom come in, namely church discipline. You have to come together and say, whoops, we've got to remove them from the assembly. As much as we can, as much as we can, the visible assembly should parallel the invisible reality as much as possible. That's what we strive for, purity. And so baptism, when it's done rightly, it protects the church. And by protecting the church, we honor the bride of Christ. Now remember, God praised the zeal of Phineas because he acted in, a, in holy violence for the purity of God's people. And God said, I like that. And that's what we're doing when we administer baptism properly. We are showing that we are zealous for a pure assembly and that zeal is an act of worship to God. We're, we're protecting the church. Number three, baptism unifies the church. Throughout the New Testament, we see that the unity of a local church is important. Baptism is a means by which the church comes together to unanimously welcome with open arms every individual new member. So that helps keep that unity in uh, always being nurtured and built. We're always, uh, rather than saying, all right, here's, here's 42 people that nobody's ever met before. Who'd like to have them in the assembly? Boom, they're in. We're getting big and nobody knows each other. Well, that's not what we want. But when the church has to take the time to get to know every individual. And the church can, with every individual, affirm, as far as we can tell, this seems like a believer, and we've spent time in that process, that makes sure that when every block is added to the church, it's, it, it's coming into an already welcoming community. It, it, it strengthens unity. It's something the church does as a body in unity and love. And God is honored when His people are united in truth and in practice. And that's worship. When we come together and we are unified in a particular act as an assembly, that's worship that honors God. Fourthly, baptism exalts in Christ who has accomplished the work. Baptism is a very simple and yet odd act, which we recognize has absolutely no significance apart from the reality which it teaches, namely that Jesus Christ died to sin, was buried, was raised to live to God on our behalf, and that through faith we share in the benefits of His work. Every time we baptize somebody, we're saying, remember what Christ has done. Look at what Christ has accomplished in our place. It's a testimony to Christ from both the church and the person being baptized that Christ and Christ alone is the substance of all saving power. Nothing special in the water. Nothing special in the water trough or the pickup truck. Nothing to, wherever we can get some water. Nothing special about the water. We're looking to Him. We're saying, you've commanded us to do this. It's kind of strange to most people, but this is a testimony that Christ died for sinners and I have been united to Him. So that's baptism. Secondly, Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, <clears throat> or we re co commonly refer to it as communion. The administration of the Lord's Supper is a part of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. We know that the Lord's Supper has its roots in the Passover meal 
of Exodus chapter 12. You remember the story. God has, has sent up until this point nine plagues upon the nation of Egypt. He's about to send the tenth plague by which He will ransom His firstborn son, the nation of Israel, out from Egypt. And through that He's going to kill the firstborn sons in the households of the Egyptians. But the, the Israelites were commanded, take a lamb, bring it to your household, slaughter that lamb, put its blood upon the doorposts, eat the meat from that lamb, and those inside of that home, when God passed by, when that blood was on the doorpost, they would be passed by. They would be allowed to live. And any home without the blood, the firstborn son would be killed. God would pass by the house. When He saw the blood, recognizing a death has already happened here. And I can move on. In other words, it was the blood of the Lamb which pacified the wrath of God and allowed the Israelites to keep their sons. This, of course, points us to Christ, who is the Lamb of God. And He is God's only begotten Son. And His blood was shed as a payment to infinite justice for our sins. Now, through faith in Christ, like we just saw, we come into union with Him so that His death is made over to us. So that when God comes by us, He sees that here a death has already occurred. Your record says the death Payment to justice has already taken place. And we go free because Christ died. That was the Passover and how it points to Christ. But then we see that Passover leading into the institution of the Lord's Supper. Christ takes that Passover and He changes it into something new. Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. We can turn here. This is a little bit of a longer one. I hate to imagine that you have your Bibles on your laps and are not flipping through them at least a little bit. Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So this is a Passover meal. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In a sense, we could say this final Passover was the first Lord's Supper. Now, did they continue to have Passovers after that? Yes, they did, and still do. But this would have been the final, real, significant Passover, but it became the Lord's Supper. The bread pointed to the body of Christ. The wine pointed to His blood. Now we trace this over into the book of Acts. In the earliest church, Acts 2.42, we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I am in agreement with those who would say that that 
definite article, the breaking of bread, alludes to not simply they got together at Scotty's or Cracker Barrel, but that they partook of the Lord's Supper. These were the things that characterized the gatherings of the first church. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, prayer. We see later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. I won't read the whole story. You know the story of Eutychus falling out the window. Verse 7 of Acts chapter 20 says that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Verse 11, when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. Again, notice they met on the first day of the week. Why? To break bread. The purpose was to gather together to share the Lord's Supper. Paul opens up with what we would say is a, a, quite a lengthy sermon. And it's not until after midnight they come back up and they have the Lord's Supper together. That's why it's commonly held that this was not merely they got together to eat supper. They, they would have already done that. This is after midnight, in, even into the very next day. In other words, it became a staple in the early church when they met to devote themselves to apostolic preaching and teaching and the Lord's Supper. Now, what is the significance of the Lord's the significance of the Lord's Supper to us? Well, in all three synoptic gospels, we have similar statements. Matthew twenty six twenty eight. This is my blood of the covenant. Mark fourteen twenty four. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant. Luke twenty two twenty. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. In my blood. In other words, the Lord's Supper points us to the ratification of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ. You remember we, we've talked about this. That word participation is a form of the word koinonia. An intimate fellowship and communion with Christ's blood when we drink. With Christ's body when we eat. That is to say, in the Lord's Supper, when administered and received by faith, looking unto and meditating upon Christ crucified for us, we have intimate fellowship and communion with the body and the blood of Christ. In other words, we share in the benefits and the graces and the virtues of the broken body and shed blood of Christ through the Lord's Supper, through communion. That's, that's what's happening. So we ask again, who are the proper subjects or participants at the Lord's table? And again, the only answer is the saints of God. Members of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Those who actually partake of the benefits, graces, and virtues of what Christ did for us. So we might say all Christians should be given the Lord's Supper. But remember, it is a sacrament administered by the local church. 
It's not something we just do at our house by ourselves. It's not something we do at Walmart. It's not, we can't say, well, I, I, again, I had breakfast at Scotty's. That was the Lord's Supper because where two or three are gathered. No, it's, it's a sacrament administered by the church in the gathered assembly. So we would say that only church members, those received by baptism into the fellowship of a true church, should receive the elements of the Lord's table. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 20. Paul says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Implication. It ought to be for the better. When the church gets together, it ought to be for the better. It ought to be for edification, for building up, for for advancement, for growth. He says, that's not what it is. It's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, <clears throat> and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Notice three times. When you come together. When you come together as a church. When you come together. And that middle one especially is important. When you, plural, come together. We would say, when y'all come together as a singular church. When y'all get together as a church, he says that's the context of the Lord's Supper. He says, you're doing it, you're not doing it right. In other words, the Lord's Supper is for Christians who are members of a local church. Now here, we do a, a closed communion, although we do allow for members of other churches who can verify their membership in that other church. But it's, it's a, it, it is a strictly church-administered sacrament for the people of God. What is the ecclesiastical significance of the Lord's Supper? Well, we could say this. If baptism is the door into the local church, the Lord's Supper is the dinner table. It's the place of intimate communion and fellowship between the members of this body and Christ our head. To admit someone to the table is to allow someone to the most intimate part of Christian worship. The Lord's table is the pinnacle of New Testament worship. Now, how is administering and receiving the Lord's Supper an act of worship? Again, it's pure obedience. It's another positive command. doesn't make any sense apart from the fact that, God, that Christ instituted it and said to do it until He returns. It's not natural to men. Obedience in worship is acceptable worship. We're doing what God has commanded. Secondly, it is the apex of worship. We come together. We hear a sermon very often. Through application, the Word of God will cut and it will convict and it will wound and sometimes there will come the balm that covers that over and sometimes there isn't. It brings harsh conviction. But we, we, are, we lead up to the apex of worship where we come to the Lord's table and we are reminded the Word cut, the Word wounded. It convicted me but I still belong to my Father, and He still beckons me to come and to dine at His table. The hope of glory is not the hope of finally hearing a great sermon. The hope of glory is to sit down and eat and drink with Christ. Luke twelve thirty seven. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline at table, and He will come and serve them. It's the pinnacle. 
It looks back to what Christ has done. And it looks forward every time. Do this. And, and every time we do it, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. He's still coming. Until He comes, He's still coming. It's the pinnacle of our worship. Thirdly, it focuses on Christ's death. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that Christ instituted this. He said, do this in remembrance of Me. Do this in remembrance of Me. The Lord's Supper turns our hearts and our minds weakly to that great hinge of Christ's work, which is His death. And so when we come to the Lord's table, what we're doing once again is we are exalting in the death of Christ. Though worship is not merely intellectual, it is not less than intellectual. And we all know that one of the, the most difficult and yet chief acts of worship, especially in the assembly, is to bring our minds, once alienated and hostile to God, to focus on and think of and delight in God in Christ. And to fix it there. That's a very difficult thing. The Lord's Supper is a means by which our minds are tethered using even our hands and our taste buds and our eyeballs. Remember, look, bread, body, cup, blood. Remember, remember. It's interesting that both baptism and the Lord's Supper point us to the death of Christ. Again, only those united to Christ in a death like His are or should be participating in the sacraments. Now in closing, as with all the parts of worship, once we're acting with understanding, we also have to do so with faith, reverence, and godly fear. So here's the application as we participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper. First, faith. In the acts of baptism and the Lord's Supper... Matters which to an outsider might seem odd. And we think, you know, probably when we baptize somebody out here and somebody drives by, they probably, if they don't know any better, they would say, that is some, that's some weird stuff going on there. It seems odd to an outsider. But when we do it, let's act in faith, holding on to the promises of God. We're not looking to our actions, there I did it, or there I went under. No, we're looking to the promises of God, looking forward to the work of the Spirit through the sacraments. So we do so in faith. In reverence. Let's observe these things with reverence. Now, we would agree Rome has gone too far in its supposed reverence and things like this, especially with the Lord's Supper, pretending that there's something especially sacred about the bread and the wine. As we were talking earlier, you know, they would say that the, the mouse who sneaks into the cathedral and gets a crumb is, is running off with some of the body of Christ. We, we don't go that far. We don't revere the physical elements beyond their scriptural usage. But we should revere the sacraments and our activity in them. We, we should partake and participate with reverence. Numbers 18.32 is, is a great reminder that to profane the holy things led to death in the Old Covenant. Right? We wipe our heads. Whew! Glad that doesn't happen anymore. And then we come to 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul says, this is why some of you have died. Because you're not examining yourself. You're not revering the holy things. So we ought to do so in reverence. And then with godly fear. We should always strive to be sensitive and aware of God's presence in all of the acts of worship, baptism and the Lord's Supper included. It is, it is a difficult thing. 
to bring our, our minds and our hearts to perform these things in faith and with reverence and, and, and again, things that are not revealed to us by nature. They, they're, we would say, this is if, if I weren't a Christian, and if I didn't have the Scriptures, and I seen this taking place, I would think, these people are a little odd. But we do it because Christ has commanded it. And God has promised that through these means of grace, and especially as we participate in faith and fix our minds and our hearts upon what Christ has done, we are given grace which sanctifies and, and does that work of ongoing salvation. Remember, salvation is a once-in-a-time act. It is an ongoing act. It will be a completed act. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. We shouldn't have any problem with many ancient statements, especially from Baptists, who will say, the sacraments save. We're not saying they justify us with God. We're not saying they, they produce a regenerating work of the Spirit. And, and they, they never meant that. What they meant was, these are means of grace which keep the heart and the mind of a believer tethered to the work of Christ until the very end. So we should do so in godly fear, recognizing that He's present in His grace by His Spirit. Well, let's pray and then we'll stand and close with a song.